Gliding in Israel, I would say without being too hyperbolic, is a biblical proportion because a lot of the biblical stories are right there. The sun's breaking through the clouds over the you know Moab mountains, which is where Moses kind of looked into Israel but couldn't enter. Uh, and then we're flying over the fortress and there are kids on summer tours that hike up there in the middle of the night just to watch the sun break over the, the ridges and the mountains. And there we are. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Before we get into what's coming up on today's episode, I do want to thank our newest Patreon pilot from Alaska, Michael Reed. Thank you, Michael. Now, he chose to support the podcast by giving us a one-time PayPal donation to help grow the show. You don't need to commit to once a month through Patreon, but if you can, of course, we always appreciate that. You can do what Michael did and head over to SoaringTheSky.com where we give you several options. Okay, so we've had a lot of episodes about soaring some of the highest mountains in the world, breaking altitude records with the Perlin Project, but today we are going to be soaring below sea level. Now, in order to do that, we're going to be heading to Israel, where we meet Natan Ellsberg and hear his amazing soaring adventures over the Dead Sea and many other places. Natan has hundreds of hours logged in gliders, and he has also done a lot of towing in Cessna 180s, Piper Super Cubs, Pawnees, and more, but he enjoys flying gliders the most. He currently flies a Janus CM and has visited and flown over 20 glider operations around the world. He's been gliding in Israel since 2009. Immediately following our chat with Natan, Sergio is back. He has a brand new Soaring Master segment. Sergio, what do you have for us today? Hi, Chuck. Since this is the first episode of this year, we are going to talk about Soaring Goals and how to set them in a structured way. I know that this will be super helpful for all pilots out there and also can be applied to many of our life goals. Thank you, Sergio. Now let's get into today's episode with Natan. Natan, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you join us today from Israel. How are you? I'm doing well, Chuck, and thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Absolutely. Morning here and afternoon there, I believe. Correct. Uh, about a seven-hour time difference from the East Coast. Thank you for joining us. We have a lot to talk about, but first... As always, we want to get started with your aviation story. So how did that get started? So I've been listening to a podcast or two, and I know some of the people that you've interviewed. Um, I'm going to say kind of like Bruno, that I heard him and I was just inspired. When I was like four or five years old, I thought I was Superman and could jump off like cliffs and things like that. Um, <laughs> right. So I think at the age of five, I, I tried it. We were doing the summer in Cape Cod and there were some... Uh, lighthouse there on this rocky cliff and I just thought I could just run and, and clear the cliff and the rocks and everything I landed on my ass <laughs> um, <laughs> it was like for like three or four days like like bruised and beaten and whatever and and you know like I guess I learned I couldn't fly naturally right <laughs> so then fast forward about six years later um, we left New York City and moved to the suburbs and we bought a house that was the uh, last house on final to an airport 
that's now uh, closed called Ramapo Valley Airport. Um, and at the age of 12, I think, I'd started going up to that airport um, just to kind of see what was going on there. My dad used to fly like Piper J3s in college. He never got a certificate, but he was very encouraging. Um, and at the age of 12, I started uh, getting rides from just uh, a bunch of you know, like New York City businessmen that had their Cessnas and Moody's and and all that stuff there. And uh, I realized that if you could sit on a phone book and get your feet on the rudder pedals, that you could start learning how to fly. Um, so yeah, it all started there. I was ready to sell on my 16th birthday. Drove, did my uh, uh, written test and at 8 a.m. I got to the airport in 172 and went around the pattern for the first time. So that's where it kicked off in the power world. And then I went for another about 250 hours, uh, got myself to Penn State University. And um, the interesting about, thing about soaring is one, I had no idea when I was a student there, at least in the first few years, what soaring was. And I didn't realize at all that I was kind of in the Mecca, at least on the East Coast yeah. of soaring. I remember actually they brought like a one, there, there was a Penn State soaring club. And I remember they brought a 126 and put it together like on old main lawn like during some student, you know, kind of activities day. And I looked at that guy and I was like, ah, that's for kids. So, you know, I, I'm <laughs> flying aerobatics. I got my instrument rating. I'm like, what, who cares about this thing? And then um, one day in my senior year, I was doing a research project and my instructor, Ken Farwell, who taught me to fly instruments and aerobatics said, yeah, I'm going to go over the hill and tow some gliders. You want to come with me? I was like, well, yeah, I guess I don't have anything better to do today. So let's go see what that's about. And uh, I'd say that that day really was like the, in some respects, the start of my life. <laughs> um, so that was over at Tom and Doris's place, uh, which I'm sure you've heard about. I think people have talked about it here over in Julian. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I sat there on the ground watching my uh, uh, instructor tow gliders and didn't think much of it. And then the Grove 103 is coming back over the field. And I'm like, okay, I see where it is. I know how to land a plane without an engine. It should be on the ground in, I don't know, two or three minutes. This would be interesting to watch. Right. <laughs> um, and instead of landing, it just kept on circling and circling. It didn't look like it was going anywhere. I started scratching my head. I was an engineering <laughs> student. I thought I knew a thing or two about like, you know, the laws of thermodynamics and and like couldn't figure out where the energy was coming from the system. And then, you know, after like five or 10 minutes, it just kind of like flew away. <laughs> and I was going like, like batshit crazy. Like what is going on here? <laughs> so finally that glider landed. The instructor in the backseat was none other than Doris Grove. And I, you know, like, I don't know if I like went to her and shook her by the, you know, I was like, what is going on? And she goes like, well, just get in and I'll show you. And I was like, okay. And that was, you know, we, we took a toe up to, I guess, you know, a standard 2000 feet. We get off toe and, you know, Doris kind of shows me, you know, what a thermal is. And we start circling and I like, you know, it's like, this is better than drugs. This is like, <laughs> I was like, that was it. That, 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 that ride kind of changed my entire trajectory in life, not just for aviation, but um, from there, it actually brought me here. So that, that's how I got started. 
Wow, that's awesome. I'm excited to hear about Israel. And you said there's like four clubs there in Israel to fly gliders, and there's quite a, quite a few pilots, right? Correct. Um, it's funny in Israel, there's this kind of pecking order, and uh, and you have military pilots, and there's a you know strong tradition there. But even in civilian pilots, we all have our uh, pilots' license numbers. My civilian pilot's license number in Israel is number 7,165. So first of all, I can tell you that there were 7,164 people before me that got you know, certified by the Civil Aviation Administration to fly uh, aircraft of all sorts here in Israel. Um, right. That was back in 2009, I got my Israeli license. Um, and my instructor's license is number 1,141. So number 1,142 was a friend of my uh, class for glider instructors. And I, I thought this was really cool. When I went and got my uh, instructor certificate, the uh, women at the CAA that do all the administration, she actually went to the safe, opened up this kind of notebook binder from looked looked like the 50s, flipped through page, you know, 23, 24, 25, and wrote down and she wrote in 1141 and she wrote my name, Natan Ellsberg. You know, so there I am looking at like the official record of every instructor in Israel. And I, you know, like I'm on wow. base 23 or 24, however many you get. In terms of soaring, uh, yeah, there are actually four clubs here in Israel. And altogether, my guess is about 200, you know, active soaring pilots. When I say active, oh, nice. you know, probably you know, that, that, that probably have like their current or, you know, or, or flown in the last year or two, wow. two major clubs and, and, and one very minor club and a half a club visiting on another club's field. So yeah, there's four of us all together. Oh, very cool. So before our chat, you said you've flown at least 20 glider operations around the world. So far, I have to ask, what has been your favorite place to fly and why? Okay. So that's a that's an interesting question because as I think about it, I, I can't really figure out a favorite. But um, when forced to think further, I think what I what what I would single out is what I the places that I have enjoyed the most. I think is pretty simple. Are operations where you end up um, like sleeping on the field or you know have housing or things like that. So. Uh, places like Lasham, which I know have been talked about, Seminole Lake, uh, Estrella out in Arizona. But even right. when our club goes camping in the Dead Sea and for three or four days are in the desert, I, I think what I really enjoy most about a soaring site is the social aspect to it. It's, you know, waking up, you know, in the morning, you know, looking at the gliders and going to sleep and tying them down at night, and, you know, sitting around with... Uh, people at the barbecue or whatever it is that we're doing and talk about, you know, yesterday's or the day's accomplishments. I, I think, you know, out of all the places I've been, those types of places that facilitate that type of interaction and plenty of clubs as well um, that have that, whether that be in Europe or in the United States, um, I think those are going to be my kind of favorite places. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in the soaring world, That's which is really nice. Correct. No matter where you're flying. Now, you're currently flying a Shemperth Janus CM. And for those that are not familiar with this ship, 
Could you tell us more about it and what you enjoy the most? Sure. So the Janus is a, ours is a 20 meter twin seater. It's uh, built by Schenperth. So it's actually the predecessor of the duo discus. We get uh, a 43 to one uh, glide ratio. So it's not you know, like, it's not the top of the line today, Arcus, but it's pretty respectable in terms of two seaters here in Israel. Maybe there's four or five other ships that are comparable. There's a duo discus here, you know, or two in the different clubs, a DG 505. Um, our club actually has a uh, non-motorized uh, Janus. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of the better two-seaters. In fact, I don't know if there's anything really that's significantly better here for two-seat flying. And ours with the engine... Uh, the fuel and uh, and my uh, partners were all heavy, so we go fast, uh, <laughs> which is which is nice. We don't take water ballast with us, but we've got an right. engine, and sometimes we'll put in full fuel, and uh, we'll be right up to the uh, the maximum weight in the front and back seat. You know, it's it's cool to pull up next to another glider on a cross country and just kind of watch them slowly go down while we go forward. Uh, right. <laughs> so. That's a good feeling. The engine certainly helps. It gets us out of the, you know, out of the waiting on line to take off, which is always, you know, nice to kind of skip the line. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else talked about it, but an engine, it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. There are advantages to it. Um, but having it back there as well as sometimes is, uh, I'm not going to say more trouble than it needs to be, but, but it's, for those that don't fly with an engine or don't have that ability, everybody thinks, oh, well, it's just so easy. You can take that out and use that anytime you want. And that's not really the case. Yeah. So there are some advantages with it, but, um, but we've got plenty of room in the back. I have three partners. We own it as a syndicate, so I'm uh, the fourth. And luckily, one of my partners actually... Uh, is a long time A and P and probably you know like one of the most long time mechanics in the soaring area in Israel and in airplanes in general. Um, so to have him as a partner, you know, is a huge uh, benefit for me. I've been in that syndicate since 2000, I don't know, 16 or something like that, and the amount that I've learned beyond just soaring about uh, but actually being a uh, you know, an owner and an owner with two left thumbs working with uh, my partners there has given me like countless insights. You know, I've, we've taken, you know, that cockpit apart and put it together probably like 10 or 15 times, you know, through oh, installing wow. some new glide computer or working on, you know, something always needs to be done. So there's a distinct difference between, you know, being an owner and just being a club member. But I think if I have to wrap it up, the the, the thing that I love most about it, and I love most about soaring, is the fact that it's a two-seater. Yeah. I had uh, a number of opportunities before I got into that. Different people saying, hey, why don't you like join our syndicate? We've got, you know, this single-seat single ship. It goes fast, you know. And I have never, I guess since the day I started flying with Doris Grove, um, I've never really enjoyed or thought it's worth, worthwhile to be up there alone. Um, yeah. So I waited quite a while to get the right opportunity to get in in this uh, twin seater. But um, for me, that that is the essence of, of why we soar is to 
it's to be able to share it with other people. Yeah, absolutely. And Tanya, uh, speaking of flying with other people, you've been a glider instructor since 2014. What are your favorite things about teaching people to soar? And maybe on the other side of it as well, what has been the most challenging over the years? Um, in terms of instructing, the favorite thing about teaching people to soar, certainly from my point of view, is um, that interaction with students and, and particularly being able to ha- help them get past like their, you know, where they're stuck. You know, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm special. There are a lot of good instructors out there, but I think I particularly am rewarded when I, you know, get assigned to or have a flight with, you know, somebody who's pre-solo and is, you know, working on their landings, but still can't just seem to get it all to come together. In fact, I think sitting there in the back seat and be able to kind of, you know, look at the situation and say, you know, why don't you try doing this, you know, and, and then two or three flights later, seeing that, you know, they've internalized that point, right? And all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're in the groove. They're, you know, they're doing their landings. They're getting the flare right. It's all working. I think that's, uh, you know, like that personal satisfaction of being able to find, you know, be coming across students that are having trouble in some aspect and being able to, analyze that and, and, and give them, you know, the, the right coaching and to see them get past that, that's, you know, from my point of view, that's what makes it all worthwhile. Obviously, you know, first solos are a, a great time for the instructors. I used to, before I sent somebody for their first solo, I used to always think, wow, that's got to be the most heavy thing on the shoulders of a instructor. And it wasn't until I got to that point when I realized that, you know, it couldn't be farther from the truth. By the time you're ready to send one of your students solo, you have no question in your mind that they're capable of doing that. So it's, it's, yeah. And it, it was like the anticlimax of, I thought, you know, wow, the first time I get to send somebody solo, it's going to be, you know, very, you know, it was the most elite feeling that, you know, in the world to see somebody that you help do, you know, help coach and, and get there and watch them achieve their, comp, you know, make that personal accomplishment again i think that's why we're here <laughs> yeah you i would that's what i think about when if i were an instructor that i don't immediately think oh that must be a lot of stress but yeah you know they're ready so i can see where it would be very exhilarating right there are challenges too uh i think when i first started instructing um i was you know like eager to be out there almost every weekend and working with students and then when i got into my Janice, I, I think there were some, you know, some of my challenges personally were things like, well, it's a good day. Do you want to go teach somebody or do you want to go see if you can, you know, set that next goal for yourself with your glider? You know, good conditions. Do, do you want to do pattern work or do you want to go cross country? Um, yeah. So there was a time in my personal path forward where, where I think like figuring out what do I want to do today? Um, I was also flying the tow plane um, and we'd have different duty rosters for different positions. And, you know, you'd see this weekend fill up and the next weekend fill up and say, wow, the next time I'm going to get to fly for myself isn't going to be for a month, you know, and then who knows what the weather's going to be. So that's been a challenge. I think over the past few years, I've kind of gotten over that. I think I'm still always happy to fly with the student or fly with somebody new and, and, and again, show them what what soaring is all about so 
you know, there are days where I like to go with my, you know, with my, uh, my partners and, and other experienced soaring pilots. Um, and there's a lot still to learn, but finding the time to, to find somebody new and, you know, showing the basics and, you know, stick and runner, there's a lot to that. Definitely a big sacrifice as instructors because they're, you know, I'm sure on those beautiful days you're thinking, oh man, I'd like to take advantage of this. <laughs> yeah, I, that's interesting to use the word sacrifice. I'm not sure if I've ever put that word in that context and I, I could see how some people say it. I, I don't know. I guess something bothers me about characterizing as a sacrifice, but it's certainly sometimes, sometimes it's uh, it's it's a uh, internal kind of friction of, you know, do, do, do I want to do this today for, for my personal advancement or am I here to advance somebody else? And, you know, there's, yeah. and I think there's a difference there. There are a lot of people that fly single seat gliders and, you know, never become instructors and go out and do their thing. That's not me. It's all, it's all about being up there in a two seater and either learning from somebody that's, uh, that has more experience from you and, or, you know, or, being being the leader and and being able to you know share some of your experience with others we always love to hear stories from the cockpit of the glider and i'm excited to hear about some of your most memorable flights good or bad can you share some of those with us wings and wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years they hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in north america and they ship globally Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Yeah, sure. So, I honestly, it's hard for me to think of bad ones, but I've got like a, a list of, you know, memorable flights. And again, that's why I do it is to make memories. So kind of in order, I, I think the the one that I wrote down and said, you know, like this is, you know, like the, this is the peak, you know, to, like, you know, I hit the Everest already for my personal goals. And, and it, you know, it was very clear the day I got there. So our lining club uh, usually once a year does a three or four day gliding camp somewhere in the desert. And in many years it's been at Masada, which is a hilltop fortress in the Judean desert overlooking the Dead Sea. Oh, wow. The Dead Sea, for those who don't know it, is the lowest point on Earth with, I think we set minus 1,400 feet or 1,200 feet, I could be wrong, on the altimeter. And that's an interesting experience in and of itself to be flying yeah, below sea level. Um, so <laughs> with my uh, Janus self-launcher, sometimes, and at the camp, not just with the self-launcher, but one of the fun things to do at camp is like to get up at the crack of get the tow pilot or whatever hook up and go for like a morning flight when it's just legal, right? In the morning twilight. So th this one particular flight, uh, we were out there camping. My wife came down and she enjoys flying, but it's not flying with me a lot. We got up early in the morning. 
was still before sunrise. We pushed the Janus to the to the beginning of the runway. My son actually put his JBL speaker in the back seat and he got the playlist up. So I had like the perfect theme music that I was thinking about for years to do this. By the way, the the song that we had playing was uh, by Jose Gonzalez called Oh, I can't remember. Oh, it'll come to me. But the, uh, the chorus is, Dawn is coming, open your eyes. Um, and we took nice. off. There's the sun rising over the mountains in, Jor- in Jordan. I'll talk about it again. But, you know, gliding in Israel, I would say, without being too hyperbolic, is of biblical proportions. Because a lot of the biblical stories are right there. So yeah, we're taking absolutely. off. There's, you know, clouds. Sun's breaking through the clouds over the you know Moab mountains, which is where Moses kind of looked into Israel but couldn't enter. Uh, and then we're flying over the fortress, and there are kids on summer tours that hike up there in the middle of the night just to watch the sun break over the uh, the ridges in, in the, the mountains. And there we are uh, with the engine still out, just kind of climbing up in beautiful you know glass air and. Um, I had developed this technique at the camp. Uh, there's a, uh, a wadi or a, a ravine, Nahal, called Nahal Tzeilin. Um, and it cuts through the desert mountains in the Judean desert. And it starts about 15 kilometers uh, further in from the Dead Sea. And it winds its way down and finally it opens up and, and spills out into the Dead Sea. Uh, so one of my partners... Uh, when we we're taking the gliders down there that year, the year before, said, you know, you can actually fly through that canyon. And I was like, really? Was like, yeah, check out, you know. <laughs> so I went to Google and I looked at the, you know, like looked at the ground terrain. I'm a civil engineer, so I do mapping of profiles and stuff. And I got to, I was like, yeah, the ground's going down, you know, like all the time. If you follow the stream, it's always going down at, you know, some grade and, well, my glider goes 43 to 1, which is well above that. So, you know, I guess I can do it. So the first few flights, in practice flights, we you know, kind of ducked down a little bit before, uh, below the below the canyon walls. And, and finally, like at this camp, I was like, boom, I can take this thing right down, you know, like 100 feet off the ground and, and fly, you know, a good six, 700 feet below the canyon walls, sneaking through the canyon uh, until you get out of there. So... You know, the start of this light was the music playing. We shut off the engine. I tell the controller who's always watching us in Israel, I'm going to be off radar for the next five minutes. Don't worry. You know, we're not, we're, you know, we're not a threat, but, you know, you'll see me on the other side. And we just take off zooming through the uh, canyon. I got down with that with my wife. Then obviously we did a final glide pass, you know, 250 kilometers an hour right over the, right over the camp uh, on the runway and came around to land. And I, nice. I remember getting out <laughs> and telling one of my partners, like, that's it. I'm ready to sell. Like I, I, I've hit the, you know, I've hit the high point on the Everest. I don't think I'm going to ever get right. better than this. Um, so yeah, that was, that was definitely one for the books. Uh, beautiful. Beautiful. We do have a bunch. I, I, there's there's two or three more, but one thing I didn't kind of say it earlier about the peculiarities of soaring in Israel, or the things that make it you know unique, is 
I do hear every once in a while on your podcast, you know, people would say, oh, I had this amazing experience with a hawk or I got to soar with a, you know, an eagle or a stork or something like that. And that's all well and good. Right. And, and I understand that. I don't know if you've, you know, come, you know, wing to wing with a, with a hawk or something like that. It's a great experience. Yeah, a few times. Absolutely. Yeah. We are in a migratory path in Israel. So we connect Europe and Africa. And we've got millions of, of migratory birds that come through Israel. Wow. Where we soar, it is not uncommon during the two peak seasons, um, spring and, uh, and fall, to hook up with 600 storks. Or, you know, like, I mean, like, mm. like you know, just, oh and you can, like, if, if, like, first of all, they obviously mark the thermals for you. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can just, you know, get lost in them and fly through them. And they'll, you know, it's kind of like driving a golf cart through a field of sheep. They all seem to, you know, move away just before <laughs> you hit them. But wow, you know, it's, it, it's something that I think is somewhat unique to Israel. There might be other places, soaring sites in the world that have this, but but we certainly get some of the best encounters with, uh, with uh, soaring birds. Uh, that you'll ever get in your life. So that's that's a true thing to you know like look back on. There was one particular flight where I was with one of my friends alone in my glider, and we were out for not a very far flight, maybe fifteen or twenty kilometers towards the sea, and we look back towards our home base and we see you know what looked like like an explosion or a puff of smoke in the air. We couldn't figure out what it was. You know, we thought, I don't know, maybe a missile went off or it's, I don't know, right? We live in a tough neighborhood, you know? Um, so we watched it, that area for a few seconds and we realized that this was a flock of starlings, but I'm talking more than 10,000. Um, and if you've seen, you know, these starlings fly, they fly in these swarms, like in like schools of fish. And right. we were able to get the glider without the engine right back. You know, we flew straight for them. We were um, <laughs> besides ourselves in the lace, and I'm like yelling at my partner alone. I was like, "Is your camera working? Like, don't screw this one up. Like, this is not the one where we record, where, where we get down on the ground and oh, I didn't hit the record button." I was like, "Yeah, you got it." Like, yeah, we were circling around these starlings for like 15 minutes um, in zero lift. Wow. Apparently, they also know how to find like the, the minimum sink area, and they were making. Yeah just all sorts of shapes like you know you know one of them looked like a question mark and one of them looked like you know i don't know a flying saucer just we and and i think like you know, like there are some flights that i think other you know soaring pilots or pilots have like very few people in the world will ever see this or will ever be able to experience this you know yeah. we haven't been lucky enough to see those starlings again in that same area for the past six years. So I think that's, uh, you know, that again, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily the migratory thing, but I think there's a certain season where they're likely to, to be out. Yeah. And I wow. think the other story, I guess, about a kind of interesting flight. And again, it goes back to why I flies. There was a, time before I was an instructor where I was really eager to take like anybody flying. So in the club, like, you know, like there was this also like, who's going to take, you know, visitors flying, 
right? So you had to be a good enough pilot, not an instructor yet, but that you could, you know, do orientation flights or visitor flights or whatever. So I was kind of like yeah. on the list and always happy to take somebody on. So one day I got a call from whoever organizes the list in the club and said, hey, you know, not to honor you, you know, are you going to be coming and flying on Friday? And, and actually I had made plans with my wife to do something else that day. So, you know, we we're talking earlier about that internal Uh-oh. conflict. <laughs> You're like, what there are other things yeah. I'd like to be doing? And I was like, well, you know, it, I wasn't really planning on coming on Friday. You know, surely you could call somebody else, right? There are other people who take a, you know, a non-pilot flying. And he says to me, well, he asked for you. And I'm like, really? He asked for me? And I had no idea. And I was like, and then, you know, it sort of hit me. Like, wait a second. If somebody actually asked for me by name, you know, I, I can't remember what I was going to do that day, but I'm not certain. But I was like, if somebody actually asked for me, I, you know, I didn't know that anybody wanted to fly with me. So I was intrigued. I was like, yeah, I guess so. If they, you know, if they insist they right. want to fly with me, it's like, yeah, they only want to fly with you. And I was like, really? So I didn't think about it too much. I got to the airport that day and... When I pulled up, I saw it was this, you know, person that, that wanted to go flying with me and a few of us other family members. And it, it, it took me a few minutes to, to really understand what was going on. He was wearing a baseball cap. Um, I looked at him and said hi. Did not remember him. Actually knew one or two of the other people that was with him. A lot of times you take people for like a birthday flight or something like that, you know, and their, their family come out and it's like this big production. So this kind of felt right. like that. But, but not exactly. Something was, was off. And I think he took off his baseball cap and he was bald. Finally, like the cogs in my you know, like brain started working and said, ah, okay. So this obviously was like a bucket list thing. I think he had flown with me a year or two before, before his diagnosis. And apparently one of the things that he still wanted to, to do um, was to have, you know, uh, another glider flight. Um, and, you know, it dawned on me, like, again, this is why I do this, right? You know, um, so it all made sense, right? Okay, he asked for me because obviously, like, when we went, when he was healthy, probably had a great time. And, you know, I can imagine sitting around yeah. saying, what are the things you want to do before you don't have the opportunity to do them again? Uh, well, I want to fly with not. It's like, <laughs> if that's, you know, if, wow. if that's, if that's my, if that's my gift for today, so be it. Um, so the flight Amen. was a fairly, um, you know, it was towards the end of the day, maybe somewhat symbolic, I guess, like the sun was just starting, you know, to set or getting these beautiful colors. And I have this, um, I have this kind of routine when I'm flying somebody, especially if I'm flying and think of the front seat, I talk to get them to talk. So I know that they're not, you know, um, you know, frozen on the stick. You know, I've, I've taken kids yeah, in the back yeah. seat and I don't know what happened to them. And I talk to them to get them to, you know, help me understand if they're feeling good or, you know, do we need to go back. Yeah. So I start my kind of regular, okay, we're up in the air. And, you know, I start doing my regular jabbering, which I can do here all day. And at some point he said to me, you don't have to talk. Wow. And I was like, wow. <laughs> And we spent, we towed to 3,000 feet um, and we watched the sunset over the Mediterranean and we just took nice, gentle uh, 
turns and you know i kind of in minimum sick there was no lift left that day but you know just the most tranquil flight we could get out of and i milked every you know foot of altitude that we had to to prolong it and you know when we landed right back down at the launching point you know we, we had to literally scoop him out of the glider you know he was exhausted i was exhausted and uh yeah you know so again i think god's given me the you know sometimes the the gift of soaring and and i think it's my responsibility to to, to share that and 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 make memories as many as possible with people well what a beautiful story thank you so much for sharing that Whew. okay <laughs> <laughs> One of the most important things we like to focus here on the podcast is safety. What advice would you give someone if they were to ask you, how can I be a better and safer pilot? I think that's a really interesting question. I'm going to start with a personal kind of confession. You know, when you go through the uh, human factors training, we talk about like the different kinds of pilots. Um, uh, I can't remember, like there are like five stereotypes. I think Tom Knopf writes about it in his book, but others... Um, and there's this anti-authoritarian, right? So I grew up, I was an anti-authoritarian, you know, I would, um, I didn't think that the rules were really, you know, applicable to everybody and me being like a, a you know, good stick and superstar didn't really think, um, you know, that I had to obey them all and stuff like that. Um, but in my years and the fact that I, that I, you know, um, survived many of those stupid things when I was younger, uh, in power flying as well. I think the the best piece of advice in terms of safety is to study accident reports. I actually had the opportunity about 10 years ago to become certified by a course that the kind of Israel NTSB was running and they, they wanted to have like a cadre of, you know, a few dozen people in the aviation industry that if there was any type of, you know, major accident and uh, you know, thank God so far, there's never been like a major serious uh, accident. They wanted to have people that, you know, had, you know, basic understanding of, you know, the methodologies in terms of crash investigation. So, um, so I took that yeah. course. And I think the the interesting thing that I get out of it is when given some situation thing, I always try to think to myself, think about how they're going to write about you in the report. And the, like, like, <laughs> right. Um, so I, like, here's a, a, a perfect, for instance, it wasn't going to be uh, an accident in the air, but it would have qualified for an NTSB investigation. We were having some problems with the tow plane, the battery notoriously would would die and we have a way to hook up jumper cables and kind of jump start the pawnee so it turned out in the configuration that our plane was in is that you could connect the uh jumper cables to basically the the batteries there are sometimes batteries in the back batteries in the front this one was like you know i, I guess in the engine compartment or near there and somebody pulled the jeep up and and there i am putting on the the cables to start the meat cleaver on the front of the plane. And I realized I'm boxed <laughs> in like, like I've got the cables here. I've got the wing strut and wing behind me. I've got the Jeep here. And I'm like, I think to myself, okay, we're going to start the engine. And then what are you going to do? <laughs> like, how are you going to get out of this? And I said to myself, wait a second, folks, 
before we start the engine, let me reposition myself, get myself behind the wing and out of the, you know, like out of the danger zone. Yeah. And, and, and again, it hit by like, like I, I could just see like writing the, the accident report, you know, <laughs> stupid idiot gets killed by the propeller because he <laughs> put the jumper cables on, didn't figure out that it's probably not a good idea to start the plane while he's standing there. Right. Because there's no way for him yeah. to escape. So I, I think, you know, if you if you can kind of imagine what they're going to write in the accident report, maybe that, you know, if you have that insight to understand it. Um, but I go further and say, also try again, somebody else said early on your cast, like you get like two buckets, one of experience and one of luck. And, and you better hope that your yeah. experience gets filled up before your luck runs out. But yeah. obviously there's no substitute for experience. And I've you know, been flying close to 40 years, I guess now. So um, I've got a good amount of experience. But I think as an anti-authoritarian, I think it's interesting for especially new students, whatever, the more that they can understand what's behind the guidelines. Like, you know, what is the story of why we shouldn't cross, you know, over a certain line on the runway? You know, it might seem frivolous to, to say that we should keep the runway area clear, but having flown, for instance, the Pawnee and after, you know, however many thousands of landings I've had and flying the tow plane, it got away from me and I ground looped once. Um, and the ground loop took me off the runway and literally maybe 20 feet away from some parachutists on an operation. And they were a certain distance away from the runway, so it was fine. You know, the plane turned around or whatever. But again, I had that same spinning meat cleaver in front of me. And, um, you know, I think it's an experience like that. For me, every time I'm out at the field, if I see somebody not really respecting not just the runway environment, but like the 20 or 30 feet next to it, you know, it really gets me going. So when we clear the glider, we land in my club, we land on a, an asphalt runway and then we clear it off to the side only after landing and you know, get out and push the glider all the way across the yellow line. Once you cross the yellow line, then, you know, go and hook it up and tow it back or whatever. You know, I just don't know if I didn't have that experience uh, of doing the ground loop in the Pawnee. I don't know if I would be as, you know, cognizant about why it's so important for us to keep the runway environment clear of obstructions. And, and the same thing goes for takeoffs. And I see too many takeoffs uh, in airplanes and gliders as well, where, you know, where we might be happy that the runway is clear. But if the tow plane, you know, has a flat tire and pull and veers off to the right and my glider is still too close to the runway, you know, again, that's what we write about in the accident. Yep, that's true. It's 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 hard to, you know, take somebody that just doesn't have those experiences. But, you know, my advice is, you know, hang around in the evening with, with the beer and stuff like that and, and listen to stories and read about them and. The more you understand them, the more you internalize, I think, uh, is going to make you a safer pilot. And my last piece of advice on safety, and we talk about this, right, in training, is, you know, when there's a, an emergency, right, is defined as kind of like a sudden event that requires, of serious nature, that requires some immediate action. So the more that you can practice and be prepared for it and not be caught off guard, great. But the other point that I really want to make is, and I've seen this time and time again, the number of accidents did not have to be accidents. 
meaning the initial disturbance or what something was benign, not not a big deal. Uh, you know, canopy opens up or things like that. We can recover from an open canopy. But if that gets you flustered and then you make, you know, some other mistake that probably shouldn't have done, that's where we start to spiral out of control. So again, my the other thing about the aviate, navigate, and communicate is once you've come to terms with what the emergency is, and you know, I've had seven or eight serious ones in my career, once you come to terms with that, do not forget to go back to the checklist. Yep. Because there are so many wheel up landings, whether in power or in gliders, but you know, there are so many other kind of I'd say secondary accidents or incidents that happen because you got flustered, you got, you know, put out there. There was something that got your adrenaline rushing. Okay, that's great. You've dealt with it. Don't forget now to go back and do your downwind check and check your airspeed and check your brakes and check your gear down and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you dealt with the emergency. Now don't screw it up on, uh, on the simple stuff. And it happens all the time. Yeah, because then it just compounds and gets worse. Right. So, you know, again, even if you don't have the experience or whatever, you had a, you know, a rope break or, you know, I've had the, I've had the release handle come off in my hand. I've had, you know, carburetors go in me and things like that in a little flight and have to wag somebody off the, my tail in the tow plane. But once you're kind of established and there, there is a lot of time in most emergencies after you're initially assessed, um, there is time to stop and think um, and, and go back. And say, okay, yeah, let's not forget the, you know, before landing checklist. Let's not forget uh, to do this. So, like, yes, there's something immediately to deal with. Once you've dealt with that, then force yourself back into what my normal routine is. Absolutely. Before we get into our lightning round questions, I would like to give you the opportunity to thank anyone that's been influential in your aviation story. Wow. There's a lot. So I got to start with... I guess all the pilots at Rambo Valley Airport that, you know, were nice enough to take this, you know, 12 year old, 13 year old brat, let them let, let me shovel their snow and, and, and mow their lawns for in exchange for like an hour in their Cessna 172. And there were dozens of those. Without them, I probably wouldn't have gotten very far. And then uh, I did have, you know, a few kind of mentors along the way. One of them that stands out a man named Ken Farwell, who I hooked up with in State College at Penn State University. And by the time I was there, I think Ken was probably in his late 70s. So um, honestly, I don't know if he's still even with us today. But Ken took me under his wing and uh, uh, taught me instruments. And as a bonus, would take me up in his Starduster II, which is kind of like a home-built um, not exactly a pit special, but not that far away in terms of performance and aerobatics. So my kind of reward for a, a day of, you know, good instrument work and helping him out at the hangar would be, you know, like a 20 minute, you know, flight of Cuban eights and, and, and knife edges. And, uh, and in the end of the day, he took me over to Julian to, to meet Tom Knopf and Doris Grove. So uh, obviously, sometimes I feel like I, I had all these, I guess where I am here in Israel, kind of far away from, from where the heart of everything is. You know, like I was, I had the ability to fly with Doris Gove with my first ride, Tom Knopf as well. I'm sure flew the tow plane on numerous times when I was the first early student. 
Uh, I don't know if Mark Marmer has been mentioned in your podcast before, but he was uh, Dr. Mark Marmer uh, is a professor of aeronautical uh, in the aerospace department in Penn State. And he actually did some foundational work on winglets. Uh, a lot of the modifications that you'll see on some of the uh, older ships like the LS, you know, threes or fours, I'm talking about the stuff that, you know, not built today. Uh, you'll see a lot of times in parentheses, it says it has the Marmer winglets. Well, that's that's Dr. Mark Marmer. So he was the advisor of our soaring club. And so those were back in those foundational days of, you know, wow, I got to fly with, you know, all these people that that had that made their mark on, on the soaring community. Personally, I had here in Israel um, uh, a mentor named Hugo Marom, uh, who I hooked up with way too late in my career, but uh, again, no longer with us. He was one of the uh, kind of founders or influential people of civil aviation from Israel from the War of Independence. Was very fortunate to learn a lot about airport design and airspace, and I worked with him on dozens of projects for about a decade. And he really got me back into flying in Israel. I took a hiatus for about 15 years when I first moved here because I didn't know the language and I didn't have enough money. And I started raising a family, didn't have the time. Um, and Hugo really pushed me back into uh, the cockpit, which I'm forever grateful for. And the last two people that I'll kind of mention here. Um, that had a mark. One I think was talked about uh, here. Shmuel Diamond uh, wasn't, you know, didn't fly with him a lot, but he was an Israeli glider pilot, and he would come over here and do some FAA stuff. And if somebody needed a biennial here in Israel. Shmuel was a CFIG in, out in Colorado, and uh, unfortunately, he uh, had a fatal crash. Yes, about a year ago, or so maybe less than that. There's been other talk about the fateful incident out there in uh, Colorado with the microbursts, and certainly he's missed. And the last person I'm going to mention is one of my, my dear friends, Aaron Pankin, who flew out of Randall Airport, uh, as well met his, uh, met his demise uh, through aviation, was flying actually at the glider club. He was not flying the glider, he was flying his uh, Aranka Champ, and um, there was a Unfortunately, accident takeoff. Aaron one of, was one of my best friends and would come to Israel usually once or twice a year. We would aviate back in the United States and you know, we'd come out here and fly <laughs> my Janus. And it's been three years now and I, and, I, and I miss him. So, you know, there are a few people that I, you know, look back upon this career and certainly the ones that are not with us anymore. I, you know, bow my head in respect and grateful that I did get to know them. Now, Tom, we want to get into the lightning round now. Just a fun question and answer. Um, if you want to skip any of the questions, you can do that. So what do you think? I, I'll give it a shot. All right. I know you had mentioned this, but it's, it's kind of funny. This is actually my first lightning round question today. But what music do you associate with soaring? Classic, rock, theatrical, or nothing beats a chirping vireo? Um, I, I think my answer was that particular piece of music stay alive by Jose stay alive by Jose Gonzalez is my kind of like anthem um, but there are others I, I guess you know whether it's rock or whether it's something else I've, I've always thought about what is the appropriate music that you want to play for a student on you know his first solo and you make the video you know if you're going to get on the radio and pipe it through the you know to the on, on the radio while they're soloing like 
what is it? Right. Mine is mine is stay alive. Dawn is coming. Open your eyes. <laughs> nice. Biggest item in your landout kit. My landout kit or my landout experience only has two official field landings, thanks to the engine. But interesting, we started flying about ten years ago. There was this kind of a bunch of pilots here ended up buying. Um, I think it was. I'm not sure it was the Amazon one, but there was like a black screen electronic ink e-reader. One is by Amazon. The other is a Kobo. I can't remember, but whatever. Somebody got a bunch of them and we installed a GPS and a Flarm and whatever. And we got cross-country soar and top hat. And, and so in the end of the day, we had this really cool glide computer, um, which was totally sunlight readable because it was using the electronic ink kind of black uh, stuff. So you could see it perfectly in daylight it wasn't such a great computer the screen lag was horrible but here's the thing i ended up landing out twice and in both places i probably had to wait three or four hours on a hot you know spring day until my buddies could get the stuff together so i went under the wing and i had luckily i had on that e-reader some books so if you ask me like what's the best thing to have in my landout kit Get under the wing, get some shade. And if you've got like a, a book that, that happened to be like that glide computer probably did be better for for the two or three hours of reading in the farm field <laughs> than it did in actually helping me navigate to a better landing spot. Nice. Gloves while flying, even in summer. Gloves? N- not for me. <laughs> Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never? Um, we do not often get days that we need oxygen, meaning we hardly ever get above 10,000 feet. There have been, the short answer is I've never taken oxygen with me, although there have been a few days where I thought about bringing it with me or, or like the, the forecast didn't actually work out. We didn't get that 12,000 foot day. Um, I have been up to 14,000 uh, flying, we, we had some epic flights all the way down to the Red Sea and back in a lot. Um, and like for brief intervals, we were above 12,000 feet. But, it, you know, just for like the next cloud fill up and then we were back down. So we, you know, we were never yeah. above 12 uh, for any for more than a few minutes. So honestly, I don't know what I can say is that I certainly do remember finishing those climbs to 14,000 feet, I certainly could feel like I would take in a breath and still felt that I wanted more, meaning like realizing that one of the, not hypoxia, but one of the kind of symptoms or one of the things you could feel is like, you just took a big breath and I still feel like I need to take more, right? So I certainly had that right. feeling, but didn't have the oxygen. With us. Some other people do fly with oxygen here, but it's it's rare here in Israel to actually go up and fit. Flight preparation, day before, day of, or other? Um, I think both, meaning it depends how you look at it. But, you know, certainly if, if, if we want to go cross country, um, you know, certainly I'm thinking about already at dinner time the day before, what am I eating? And like, where is that going to end up, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon tomorrow? <laughs> right. So do, right. do you really want to have that, you know, extra thing of spaghetti or, you know, or, or so, you know, like there's that preparation, obviously. there is. So I'm going to say before. What would you value more? Win a contest or set a record? Huh. I'm not really, we don't do 
a heck of a lot of contest flying here in Israel. Uh, we do LLC, and I, I certainly think that, you know, there's fun to, to look at your track and LLC and look at your buddy's track and what did, you know, what did they do? So I, I guess I'm going to say set a record, but it's, it's only because I really don't have much contest experience. Do you fly for speed, distance, or you don't care? Both. Uh, again, we, we don't do much task flying here in Israel. We do, we do OLC distance, right? Or speed. Um, but I do look like, let's put it this way. If, if I didn't do the, the most distance in the day, and I rarely do, I mean, there's probably at least 15, 20 glider pilots of my caliber and higher. So you're like, some days I'll win like the Israel, uh, distance, but then you're like, if I didn't win the distance, I was like, okay, well, how fast did he go? It's like, mm, he only did 75 kilometers an hour and I did 86. You know, I'll take that <laughs> as, I'll take that as my consolation prize. So, um, <laughs> and some might say it's not fair. I've got like the heaviest two place glider with a good glide ratio. So maybe it's not so difficult, but yeah, I look at both. So land out, you have two options, busy towered airport in between commercial jetliners or a hayfield. I'm going to go with the hayfield. I have like for those that know Lashem, and I know the people on this thing realize that at Lashem, every once in a while, a 737 will come in, um, you know, and they'll stop all this stuff. So, but, um, but no, I can't see myself landing like at a, at a real commercial airport with a glider. <laughs> what do you do once you land? I don't know. So, I, I'd pick a hayfield. Emergency, you have two options jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Oh. Ooh, um, <laughs> that's bad. You know, I listened, I, I can't remember if it was like just recently or two years ago, but I listened just a few days ago to a podcast that you had about some pilot that landed uh, short of Truckee and probably went into Lake Tahoe. And uh, yep, I, think, that's right, yeah. I think before hearing that story, I think I would have said a lake after hearing about how he like the the water kind of like, you know, the negative lift or whatever kind of cracked his wings or whatever. I, I think I'm going to go with the parachute. All right. <laughs> when do you check the tire pressure in the main tire? Per flight, per day, per month, per season, or just when it looks low? I think I look at it every day. I know I went up in our two-seater, club's two-seater just on Friday, and I looked and I said, yeah, it looks a little low. I think we took off, uh, even with a little low, but I'm pretty sure that like when we got back on the ground that somebody put some air in it. So I, I do look. I guess if we can roll it out to the flight line, I, I kind of think we're okay to fly, but I'm not necessarily recommending that. That's my anti-authoritarian. <laughs> what is your favorite soaring video, if you have one? Favorite soaring video? Mm. I don't know, but I, I would say this. I, I, I'm certainly a fan of, of uh, Bruno, and I've met out. I've been out to Salt Lake a few times, and we've had lunch, and uh, certainly want to aviate with him and, and Will. I've been down to Nephi. Uh, he wasn't there that day. Um, so I guess I'm a fan of whatever Bruno does. Uh, but I think in general, um, as I was talking about the birds, I, I think being able to, to capture birds in flight is, is an art elusive art all in and of itself. Um, so I take my hat off to anybody that ever gets like a good 
rendition of what it feels like to soar with birds. So I'm going to go with videos. I'm going to go with uh, soaring with bird videos and anybody that's made one that really can get somebody that's not been up there that true feeling of what it's like to have like, you know, a, a soaring bird with a two or three meter wingspan flap his wings next to you uh, in the air. If you can capture that on film or whatever, great power to you. Nothing like it. Absolutely. So someone is going to be in your area in Israel and they want to go soaring. What would they need to do? That's a really good question. Um, the short answer is call me. Uh, <laughs> so one, I speak English, not, uh, not all of my, uh, um, colleagues speak English, right. but definitely give me a call. Um, you know, whether if you want to come with me and I, again, I'm always happy to take people and I'm happy to say that around the world in the 24 spots that I've flown, uh, I'll call ahead and I'll, you know, fly with other people. So, you know, that's why I'm here, like the James Taylor song. That's why I'm here. I'm here to take people flying. So give me a call. Uh, even if not, I'll, I'll hook you up with people uh, that will take you up. Unfortunately, um, and we kind of glossed over this at the beginning when you asked what's peculiar or what's interesting about Israel. Uh, Israel is um, a fairly difficult place, uh, not only to get like a letter of validation, um, but um, you still have to kind of speak Hebrew in the cockpit or, you know, with the controllers. We fly in controlled airspace everywhere, lots of Air Force bases. So uh, unfortunately, some of my friends visiting pilots that would be perfectly capable of, you know, getting checked out and, and they're perfectly capable uh, soaring pilots, unfortunately, can't really uh, go on their own here in Israel again, mostly because of the neighborhood that we live in. Give me a call and I will make sure to, you know, hook you up with one of the two major clubs, either uh, my club in the South, the Negev Gliding Center, or up in the North, the Megiddo Gliding Center. You know, if we, if we don't hook up personally, I'll, I'll put you in touch with the right people that will get you up. All right. I'm going to put your email in the show notes, if that's okay. That's perfectly fine. All right. Great. Natana, I appreciate that. Man, I've had a blast talking with you today. Well, thank you so much for joining It's us. been a pleasure, and I appreciate you opening up your microphone uh, to hear a little bit about what's going on here in Israel. Absolutely. And in the future, you know, we'd like to hear an update from you. So whatever. Let's see how this one goes. And <laughs> um, But <laughs> again, you don't have to twist my arm to talk about soaring, as you can tell. Thank you, Natan. Sure. Hi everyone, Sergio from Soaring Master here. Firstly, I would like to wish you all a happy new year full of joy, health and awesome flights. It's super common in the New Year's Eve to promise ourselves something related to our life goals. To finish or to start something, to change a habit and with soaring is no different. Unfortunately, some soaring goals are not achieved due to external factors, but many aren't achieved because they are poorly defined goals. Like, uh, this year I'll become a better pilot, and that's unfortunately a vague objective, and it's hard to keep track of it. How would you know if your efforts are in the right direction or not? Due to the low quality of many certain goals, it's common to, to end a year without having that feeling of accomplishment 
about our soaring goals. And since this is the first episode of this year, I'll share some simple ways of improving your soaring goals quality taken from the Soaring Master course and go through some ways of better planning your efforts to achieve them. Uh, I would like to propose you one thing this year. Let's make these episodes, these interviews from the show, uh, the Story Master segment, a journey of self-improvement as story pilots that starts right now and will only end in December 24, hopefully with an accomplished goal. So to start with, let's discuss how to better set our goals for this year. Here, we are not talking about task goals, we are talking about major accomplishments, about major goals. And that's why one shall always focus on setting specific and measurable goals, like accomplishing a silver badge, or flying your first 300km task, or improving, say, by 15% your maximum achieved cross-country speed. If you are having trouble with weather forecast or task setting, as an example, you can join a specific course about the subject or buy a book and finish studying it within a very uh, specific time frame, say uh, two or three months. So the objectives must be time bound. You need to have a limit, you need to specify a time frame for its accomplishment. The thing about these goals that we have previously uh, mentioned here is that they are all well-defined, they are very specific and they are time-bound in a way that you know it precisely when you have achieved them. They won't be vague like I want to be a better pilot next year for instance. You know when you have achieved what you want. Another super important thing about major goals is that they need to be realistic. How one can set a goal of winning a national competition if the pilot has never joined a competition before? Or if its cross-country average uh, is way below the competitor's average? Goals also need to be attainable. Are you prepared for this, for this goal? Do you have the training for it? Do you have full conscience of what it takes to achieve the goal? Do you have the means for it? Do you have a glider at your disposal, retrieval car, ground team? Do you have the logger? Do you know what the rules are for setting a, a record or not? Well, if you haven't given any thought about these aspects before setting your goal, do so. There might be some pieces that will need to be sorted out before the next season, but we all have a new year ahead to work on the gaps that are separating us from our dreams. Uh, as you analyze your goals, you'll find that most probably one of them might need to be broken down into smaller ones, like joining a certain camp or having wave instruction, for instance, or transition to a new class of sailplanes, or joining a competition for the first time, a regional one first, then finishing the same regional between 5th and 10th. Some major goals might need to be broken down in 2 or 3 years, but hey, time is our ally. Experience is built upon exposure, so don't feel frustrated if a goal is 2 or 3 years ahead. Some things do take time. 
the main thing is that when you start analyzing your goals in an analytical way, like the way we are doing here, you're already taking a big step towards it. So now let me ask you, what's your goal for this year? What's your goal for the next season? I would love to know what you're planning. Uh, so I will open a question box on my Instagram account if you want to share it. Check out on Instagram the account at SurveyMaster. Well, in the Summer Master course, we go through two different goal-setting methods for soaring, which greatly helps pilots define their next steps. This year, I'm going to open a new Soaring Master course class. For more information, check out my website, soaringmaster.com. See you in the next episode. Take care, guys. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.